This episode is sponsored by the Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving towards a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, an entrepreneur offers reforestation in a box. Sustainable aviation leaves the departure lounge. Introducing the Big Lag Index. And professional athletes step up to the plate for COP26. It's the wind-up and the pitch, this week on 350. It's October 22nd, 2021. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me from her posh offices high atop Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello. Greetings, Joel. It is a lovely autumn week here. How are you doing out there in La La California land? Well, first, of all, the watchword here is rain. It <gasps> rained this oh week. It's, rain, it's raining. This going to be raining this weekend and into next week. Not a lot of rain, but mm-hmm. heck, it, anything that makes the streets wet and you know waters the gardens is a big deal these days in in mm-hmm. parched California. So that's. That's the most exciting thing I could think of. This other exciting thing I could think of, of course, is, uh, well, let me just put it this way. You know, there's a crispness in the air. The leaves are changing. There's a certain je ne sais quoi that can really only mean one thing. It's time again for Verge. And of course, (laughs) we're talking about Verge 21 this year's edition, our 10th annual Verge conference uh, and expo on climate tech. And, uh, you know, it's always exciting in the run up to any of our events, but Verge in particular. Uh, So, yeah, you're you've got your usual lineup of things (laughs) you'll be doing. What are you excited about, Heather? Boy, I have, you know, I'm all over the map on this, this, uh, this one. I've got a carbon session. I've got a mobility. I'm actually uh, hosting one of the Accelerate fast pitch competitions, the one for mobility. I'm excited about that. I've got a session on regenerative agriculture. I've got fast pitches on batteries. I'm just like, I'm all over the map. I'm, I'm definitely converging topics. <laughs> that have to do with the transition. Um, excited, excited about that. I, I love also um, listening to our stage and picking out highlights from our keynote program for the podcast. So that's what we'll be featuring next week. But what about you? What, what's what's on your plate? Well, I too am doing one of the Accelerate uh, pitch competitions on water. Um, and uh, mm. uh, for some reason, I don't know if it's planned or it just works out this way. As I did last year, I'm doing the opening plenary and the closing on Monday and mm. the closing plenary on Thursday mm-hmm. uh, interviews. And um, I'm particularly excited about the closing with Paul Hawken um, uh, talking about his new book, Regeneration, talking mm-hmm. about regeneration and um, <laughs> sorry. And uh, and then the opening one, uh, which uh, I think is, is really exciting, sort of 
looks at turning grief into movement building and mm-hmm. how we all can lean in in some new ways, given uh, despite the uh, tough times we're looking at just from the, you know, the global climate perspective. So anyway, uh, and then a bunch of other things in between. So uh, I'm, you know, it'll be a busy week. And I know you will be directing, as you do so well, the team coverage as uh, once again, and um, and the plenary sessions about an hour each day from uh, uh, noon to one Eastern, nine to uh, 10 Pacific time will be live streamed to anyone and everyone. And you'll find a link to the event on the Green Biz homepage. Um, so that's next week. But let's go back to this past week in review. Well, speaking of eco-grief or climate grief, I I love the piece that our associate editor, Jesse Klein, did this week on corporate tree planting, but with a twist. She she specifically writes about how the wildfire situations in so many different regions um, affect what we should be planning for and, and what corporations should be doing with their with their with their efforts. And I the reason I say uh, I mentioned the grief is that she's she has a wonderfully atmospheric lead um, that sort of talks about walking through the burn scar near is it Berryessa Lake? Exactly, Berryessa. Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and in sort of the the fire there, and and just kind of taking that in and under, and trying to understand that the impact and what does it mean to to replant an area like that. So I. You know, we we've been written so much about tree planting initiatives, and I just love this take because it's it's obviously one that we need to be paying far more attention to. Um, one of the things that I I was um, particularly intrigued by was just sort of the concept of there are certain areas that don't need our help necessarily, right? That the natural ecosystem could potentially grow back on its own, and that was one of the sort of first steps in any post wildfire restoration is figuring out what that area is and if this is an area where that's the case. So yeah, I love the story. Just it was a different take on a on topic that we all are very passionate about and, and and have a lot of opinions about. What about you on this one? Yeah, I mean, you know, climate change is forever, at least for, you know, decades and centuries. Um and trees are not. Uh, trees mm-hmm. don't live that long, you know, some 20, 30, 50 years, some more. Um, and so, and then of course, there's the wildfires and uh, in, uh, insect infestations and and just uh, a changing climate that may make some of these corporate tree planting uh, initiatives uh, to offset their carbon emissions uh, problematic and that they're not really doing what they said to be doing. And then of course, there's the kinds of trees, you know, the uh, invasive trees may capture less carbon uh, even uh, than treeless areas as the research has shown. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. permanence of carbon offsets yeah. is is what this is uh, so much about. And uh, as we're seeing, you know, we've got trillion tree programs and companies making just huge commitments to plant trees. And, and that's great. Uh, but how you do it and how you account for that and how you assume that a certain number of those trees will not be around when you think they're going to be around uh, in a, you know years or decades uh, hence and so this it just gets into you know, surprise sustainability it has complexity and uh, <laughs> it just is a, a, as complex as anything as simple as the idea is you plant trees they they sequester carbon it's much more complicated than that so i 
I, I, I love that. And, and it leads right into the second story we want to talk about, which is uh, by Esteban Guerrero, who's a managing principal at the organization called SSOL Sustainable Solutions. And it's called the Big Lag Index, the PC wrote. And he, he, he's promulgating the idea that we create an index that really measures how much additional pain or effort it will take to act tomorrow if we procrastinate today. Wow, you know that's kind of cool, and, and he's and he's come up with uh, actually the the formulas for that uh, the sort of you know long uh, uh, long uh, small type you know the for, well mathematical formulas you know what they all look like Pre-calc. something that I can't read and don't even know how to read it out loud, let alone to mm-hmm. uh, understand what it's what it's saying. So. Uh, you know, this is a big idea. Uh, that's an important idea. And uh, who knows uh, where this will go? It would be great if at least if some organization or some individual or academic could start actually taking this concept and applying it to to companies and projects and, and other things. Yeah, I, and I'm I'm not going to try to read all the formulas either. Or like, although I did take pre-calculus at the college level, <laughs> amazingly enough, for an English major, it's not as simple as I think he he wants it to be. However, the, the the simple thing is that we don't know what the cost of procrastination is, and and what what it is, what delaying is doing to our ability to reach net zero. And I love the idea that he's promulgating here, like you said before, that. We know that greenhouse gases are going to uh, grow at a certain rate. Um, you know, so therefore, if we don't do something now, like how are we going to make up the difference, if you will, right? So I, I like that. I love the the idea. Like, hey, folks out there, get your um, your finance team focused on this, and your your analysts. I think that they'll they'll have a field day. Um, but I just, it's a really great, I think jostle for reminding us that we need to keep we need to move and what is the cost of not moving now yeah. so love it Definitely well spe- love it. speaking of jostle let's talk aviation no that's a really bad segue but let's go with that <laughs> <laughs> this is a story turbulence that, yeah, turbulence yeah. jostling uh yeah i don't know yeah, i don't know, Joel. I don't know. Well, well this is clearly not uh, going to take off this conversation but uh oh. phil rosen our contributing writer wrote a great piece uh about delta JetBlue, mm-hmm. and united uh leaning into sustainable aviation fuel. Now, I know we've talked about sustainable aviation fuel, SAF, as it's called, SAF. Um, and uh, in the, sort of many times in the past, I've written about it uh, as well as I think you may have as well, Heather. Mm-hmm. And and I guess what what's sort of significant about this and why this one jumped out for me is that you know, it's it, it's it's one of these things that we've been talking. It's like EVs, like electric vehicles. You know, we talked about it for decades, and and mm-hmm. over the past decade, and over the past five years, and all of a sudden, you know, after years of years of seeing these things slowly, slowly, slowly develop, they take off. And uh, pun intended here. This is we're seeing SAF, the Sustainable Aviation Fuel, get some real traction here. It's still a teensy tiny little piece of the overall pie, yeah. but. Uh, Delta committed to a billion-dollar deal to uh, for uh, for 250 million gallons over the next decade. Uh, United has signed up to buy a billion and a half gallons over 20 years. Uh, they build as the biggest SAF agreement in history. 
um, you know, JetBlue's been in on this and a number of European airlines as well. This actually, I, I mean, I spoke to uh, aviation uh, annual meeting, uh, industry annual meeting in New Orleans uh, just before COVID. And uh, they were looking at me cross-eyed when I talked about this. Um, mm -hmm. They're not looking at me cross-eyed anymore. Uh, they're mm -hmm. really, um, uh, this is now seen as, as a viable and almost cost competitive or soon to be cost competitive when the scale gets to be where it needs to be uh, option for fueling uh, what's the United Nations folks call a hard to abate sector uh, aviation. Yeah. There were two things that popped out for me in this piece. I, 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 I agree. Like, this is one of those things where this gets announced and then this gets announced. And within the span of a month, we had some pretty, you know, these three very significant announcements. The two things that really popped out for me were one, um, you know, to go back to your references to how much fuel they're planning to buy. The aviation sector overall used about 18.3 billion gallons of, of jet fuel in 2019. So that's... You know, that's just sort of gives you context for the for the the drop in the in the tank that you're, you're that you're mentioning. It is it is a very small amount. But the other thing that happened um, from an industry wide perspective is that there's a new uh, Mission Possible partnership that uh, was announced uh, last week. Uh, that they're they're hoping to you know so everyone has the 2050 commitments. This one is a a, a goal to reach 10 percent SAF by 2030. So. That's, I think that's a, I like that it's a specific goal. I, I, who knows whether, <laughs> whether they'll get to it, but I like that, that the industry is getting together to try to figure it out. And also that they're trying to start investing together, um, you know, in helping build the capacity for this fuel and also getting the customers involved, right? I think that the other reference in here is, is um, you know, companies like Deloitte, which are part of the Sustainable Aviation Buyers Alliance, right? They're, they're committing to um, you know, helping support the flights that are using sustainable aviation fuel. So lots of lots of things going on, definitely. And that was based on how renewable energy got uptake mm -hmm. by the corporates who they formed an alliance, Reba, the Renewable Energy Buyers yep. Alliance. This is modeled after that. So, yeah, lots more to come. Um, you know, airlines being unpredictable as as they are uh, every day, but mm -hmm. uh, this is an exciting, exciting development. One of the most intriguing climate tech concepts I've written about this year comes from Terraformation, a startup that is combining desalination, solar panels, and native forestry expertise into a solution that could be described as reforestation in a box. One of Terraformation's biggest differentiators, one of Terraformation's biggest differentiators in the whole tree planting movement is the ability to help restore native tree species on degraded land. The founder of Terraformation, former Reddit CEO Yishan Wang, is a featured keynote presenter next week at Verge 21. Wang's talk will focus on the challenge of scaling reforestation, which could generate an estimated $1 trillion in revenue for landowners in the coming decades. He joins me on GreenBiz 350 to talk about how the private and public sectors can unlock that opportunity. Yishan, thanks for making some time for the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. So I think it would be useful to, to describe more in more detail what Terraformation is working on. Give us the elevator pitch about the solution. Uh, sure. Okay. So we believe that large-scale native forest restoration is the most uh, effective, efficient, and immediately scalable um, solution to closing the gap on climate change. 
Um, there's a lot of organizations and people who already recognize this and are working on it all over the world. Um, and what we want to do is we want to make sure that we can scale that collectively as a species um, to the point where it can, in fact, address the problem and offset most or all of human emissions. Um, so our mission is developing both technology, education, um, and sources of financing uh, to enable this to, you know, make the leap to massive scale. Um, and we want to do this by the end of the decade. I love the focus on degraded land. Why, why is that so important? According to the, I guess, the best available scientific consensus, given the amount of land that currently gets enough natural rainfall, if we were to reforest all of that, it would, it would draw down like 25 to 30% of all of the extant CO2 that's in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. However, there is in fact more land that is available if we could regreen it. Uh, and that's generally degraded, desertified land, um, deserts that in ancient times um, we know were, still were also deserts. Um, and if we were able to regreen them, that is to say, if we could provide a sustainable source of fresh water, then that would in fact um, yield enough land to uh, restore enough forest that we believe it would um, be able to draw down all or mm -hmm. most of the excellent CO2 in the atmosphere or mm -hmm. offset all or most of our current emissions. Yeah. So uh, just to, to dive in a little bit more into the solution itself, it's got, so we've got desalination, solar panels in, in Hawaii, Hawaii, where you're located, you're, you're focusing on native tree species. Uh, like describe for me what, what this would look like. Is this something that's put on a small piece of land or could it, to, to your point, could it scale out to larger areas of, of, for, of potential forest? Uh, yeah, we believe that it's actually arbitrarily scalable. Um, it's kind of funny if you, you ask me if, the, you know, if our current projects are like small or large, because, you know, from, from the viewpoint of somebody who sort of like lived a, a normal, like suburban life, like the, the land mm -hmm. that I'm working on just seems huge to me. And then when you sort of com compare it to like projects or the world or the scale problem, it seems like tiny, right? Because now, now I like look at enormous tracts of land and like regions and stuff and like, you know, the little project is like this tiny little thing. Um, but the nice thing about this is that it's really linearly scalable. Um, and the world already has built a lot of manufacturing capability for solar and desal. So expanding that is, I guess I, I won't say it's easy, but it's like far more straightforward than expanding any other proposed solution to planetary scale. Right. So this is, you know, I sort of think of the solution as like, it's very, very difficult, but every other proposed solution is way harder. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> okay. So uh, you're passionate about not just the opportunity to provide carbon sequestration, right? That's, that's important, but also the economic opportunity, um, including for landowners and, and people that, that might not have a role to play otherwise. And you've outlined some of that potential in a report with Frontier Economics called The Value of Restoration. So what are some of the key findings of that research that you would like to share for our listeners? Um, well, one of the things that I've learned about like large-scale economics and sort of like scaling things that are economically positive to very, very large scale is that you, can, you start out in this situation where each individual project is in fact likely to be revenue positive. It's, it's like, it, you know, it's not like a money sink. Um, however, the, every project is different 
And so what that does is that at scale, that makes it difficult to finance in large numbers because you have to evaluate every project individually before you can finance it. You know, like um, the, the analogy that most people understand is that at the beginning of the last century, this resembled what the mortgage market looked like, which is that you know, every mortgage is different and every house is different. Uh, even if you have like identical houses, the borrowers are different. Um, so the sort of like financial payback evaluation calculus has to be done individually per house. And what that does is that makes it very difficult to do at scale because everything has to be done individually. So that's actually the situation that's facing us right now with forestry projects is that they are known to be profitable or at least like revenue positive, right? There's a return on it. And people sort of understand this, right? Because if I were to give you like some barren degraded land or if I were to offer you instead like an acre of thriving forest, everyone knows that the latter is more valuable, right? So there's there's a creation of value there. However, financing something requires a fairly precise evaluation of all the risk factors, right? All all the attributes of the investment. And because they're all different, that slows the velocity of that. Now, the world has, in fact, found a solution to that, which is when there's a large number of such things, you can bundle them and you know statistically what the average um, return rate and the average risks are. And you can even sort of bundle them in a diversified way so that uh, the risk, the overall risk goes down. Like you, you know, if you bundle, you know, projects from one continent with another one, um, you know, if there's like a wildfire risk, it's totally anti-correlated. Right? It's not perfectly anti-correlated, but you know, it's 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 not like <laughs> it's not heavily correlated, um, and you can evaluate the risk. Um, and so we realized that, like in the coming decade, with the growing recognition that this is a good solution. Um, and with the necessity of it needing to be done at large scale, this opens the door to um, doing it in large enough numbers that um, projects can collectively get funding and thereby both be evaluated faster. So it's, ironically, if you have more projects, you can evaluate them faster rather than you know slower. You think it would take longer, um, but then they can also like mutually diversify away their own project risk. So that's sort of I don't know that we actually spell that out in that report, but that's what we make reference to. Um, as soon as we put it out, actually, like some academics in uh, actuarial risk modeling and financialization uh, found it very, very interesting. Um, surprisingly, people have not thought about this before or thought about it in this way before. Huh. Uh, yeah, I was surprised because I guess we've been talking about it internally for so long. We thought like it was someone else's idea. But I guess somebody on our team came up with it. Okay. So it seems to be new. So stepping out of that, what policies do we need to stimulate that, you know, to stimulate that sort of activity and this this mass scale reforestation that we would love to see? Um, Well, I think this is also very similar to, you know, the post-World War II era where the U.S. government wanted to, you know, massively increase the amounts of home ownership. Um, just mm-hmm. for like social engineering reasons, right? You have more homeowners, you have a more stable society, and all these soldiers coming back, you want them to be stable. Um, and and so that led to the increase in mortgages, right? And once you have an increase in size and scale, then uh, then you can begin to bundle them and you can begin to rate them. And it becomes faster to evaluate them and it's faster to fund them. Um, actually, there are, in fact, on a smaller scale, government programs that subsidize 
um, regenerative policies, rewilding, um, reforestation to, you know, to varying degrees. Um, but these are not, they're not like mainstays of policy, right? They do work, right? Because there's money put into it and accelerates projects or helps projects get off the ground. We need to do more of them. Um, we need to make it clear that those policies and programs will be continued in the long term. Like that, that's really important for people to know that like, okay, in 10 years, you're still going to have this policy um, because sometimes it's like renewed every couple of years or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, pol- the policies mm-hmm. that subsidize and support uh, forest regeneration um, and reforestation are what we need and what we need more of. So what's your call to action for financial institutions or for any other business for that matter, like companies, the, the Green Biz listeners here? Uh, well, specifically for financial institutions, I think research into creating financial vehicles to fund mm-hmm. uh, reforestation and forced uh, native forest restoration are, are really important. Um, we have a few very forward-looking financial institutions that are looking into that that we're working with, but I think more focus on this from financial institutions overall would be really helpful. The investment model for uh, reforestation looks very much like a bond. Um, there's a large capital outlay up front and then sort of, re- you know, repeated small payments. And then the bond maturity is not, I guess, you know, bonds sort of like mature all at once, like at their term, right? Whereas forests just sort of come back or, or, or forests are just sort of like a gradual return. Um, I guess the one way in which this differs from other investment vehicles is that, like, let's say, if you, say you, you uh, finance like the building of a hotel or some, some sort of project, if you get it 50% done, it's equal to zero. This is not the case with forestry projects. So the major change in, I guess what you'd call like the risk profile or the risk outcome is that you can have partial success in a forestry project and you will still get partial returns. Um, so I think like evaluating that as investment vehicle, both, you know, like a bond-like investment vehicle um, and, creating investment vehicles to enable this is something that financial institutions can do. Um, certain corporates are in a position to do this. And we're seeing a lot of interest from corpus just to offset their emissions through investing in you know, natural carbon capture. Um, and I would encourage more of that. There's a common misconception that forests are impermanent storage of carbon. That's, that's actually one of the main criticisms, which is like, hey, when the tree dies, it re-releases all the CO2, right? So it's not a permanent storage, or, or not a permanent store for carbon. And that's actually not correct. Um, people have this impression because they're thinking of trees as the unit of carbon capture. And yes, so it, when a tree dies, it slowly re-releases its CO2. However, the better way to think about it is the forest as a unit of carbon capture. And in fact, forests persist indefinitely. When a tree dies, um, I think it takes something like four years for it to decompose by 50%. And then by 10 years, it's decomposed like 80%. So first, the rate of decomposition is very, very slow. Um, and as it decomposes, the CO2 that is re-released is taken up by other plants in the ecosystem including, of course, the offspring of that tree. And most trees seed at least one offspring, right? So you can think of it as like every tree is in fact replaced by one or more trees. Usually trees like have thousands of seeds. And so the forest is actually a very permanent long-term store of carbon. Um, for, you know, forests are like hundreds of thousands of years old or there's like million-year-old forests. 
And it's actually the most accessible store of carbon. And it's very, very permanent. If you think of it as like the unit of storage being the forest. I um, love that. I love that. It's a great, that's great. Yeah. So I, I think that that is something that's really important to sort of like think differently from the mm-hmm. viewpoint of like, is this a carbon capture mechanism that we want to invest in for like offsetting emissions? Okay. I have one last question for you. Just sort of what's next, right? I, I wrote about you as you were, you, you've got this, I know again, I know you're in Hawaii, you've got some projects there and elsewhere. What can we expect from your team in the next year or so? Um, we've got a lot of projects in the hopper um, that mm-hmm. we're, I, I guess I would say we're getting ready to announce, but we, we sort of make that decision in conjunction with the um, the, the local community that's working on the project. So, you know, sometimes we want publicity, sometimes we don't. Um, mm-hmm. We have we have a lot of um, apps and products that we're about to launch um, to help our partners just like work more efficiently, um, track tree planting, seed collection. Um, let's see, what, what else do we have? We have like so much stuff going on. We, ha- we have an active crowdfunding campaign that people mm. invest in. Um, and that's at the same valuation terms as our Series A. Okay. Uh, you can find information about that on our website. Uh, okay. And I'll also include it in the round notes here. Cool. Um, and we are, um, we're doing more work in the area of sort of outlining the economic value of restoration. Um, we, we made like a rough stab at like how big that opportunity is. Um, and I think we're, we're starting some projects with um, some academic experts on actuarial risk evaluation to more accurately characterize and take into account all of the risk factors and develop a methodology for how you would um, structure a bond vehicle for financing uh, large scale and you know large numbers of forestry projects. Wow. Okay. Lots. Very busy. I'll have to keep uh, bothering you and nagging you for updates. So thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Sure. Thank you for having me. You just heard from Yishan Wang, the founder and CEO of Terraformation. The upcoming climate conference in Glasgow, Scotland, and all that's at stake has been described by a number of sports metaphors. The bottom of the ninth, a goal line stand, a sudden death playoff. You get the idea. But how do actual sports figures view the moment? To answer that, I turn to my go-to source on the topic, Lou Blaustein, president of the nonprofit group EcoAthletes, which leverages the power of professional sports figures to promote climate action and solution. And joining Lou is one of those sports heroes, Jackie Pieri, an American professional ice hockey player currently playing in Bolzano, Italy. She has a master's degree as well in sustainable engineering systems. Welcome to you both. It's great to be here, Joel. So let's start with you. What is the COP26 Sports Community Manifesto? Well, Joel, it it really was born out of the idea that in prior COPs, the athletes of the world, sports teams, other thought leaders in the sports community really did not have a voice. That's one part of it. The other part is that that sports community has tremendous influence. Depending on the metric, three and a half to four to 4.5 billion people care about sports. And so we at Eco Athletes, where we try to inspire and coach athletes to lead climate action, we felt, wow, 
we deal with a lot of athletes who are already interested in this. We deal with sports teams. We deal with uh, thought leaders in this space. Let's put together a manifesto that shares with the leaders of the COP, in the words of legendary New England Patriots head coach, Bill Belichick, do your job, do your job and make the changes necessary. And to, to have the athletes and the broader sports community to make that message known is the reason we're doing it. And what do you hope will happen as a result? Who do you hope to influence and in what ways? So what we hope to happen is that the manifesto gets presented at the COP to the leaders and the delegates, some combination of those, and we expect that that will happen. Uh, and then we also expect to get media coverage, and we appreciate this media coverage, um, at the COP itself, because we believe that the voices of athletes will resonate with media. And there are other sports-related activities going on at the COP for the first time. And so we are linking with those who are, those, those folks who are actually on the ground there to have this manifesto uh, presented. Yeah, great. And I should mention also that I'm an unpaid advisory board member of Eco Athletes, so there's that. Uh, Jackie, how do you see your role as an athlete in influencing others on climate change? Um, yeah, I think, you know, sports are a huge part of our culture. Um, and I think as athletes, um, you know, whether it's deserved or not, we're looked to a lot um, as role models, um, both for younger kids and for, you know, just the broader community. And I think, um, you know, through my studies, I, I've had almost as strong of a passion for sustainability as I have for hockey. And um, this was a great opportunity to kind of mold those two things together. But in particular with the COP, um, you know, I think everyone's been talking about Paris, the Paris Agreement for a long time. Um, and I think uh, through my studies, uh, I did my master's um, in sustainable energy engineering here in Europe. Um, it became even more apparent to me that this is a really urgent, all-encompassing problem that we really need to attack. And that's for the well-being of, you know, the entire global community, but also for sports, you know, um, the ski season is going to get shorter, um, you know, outdoor Olympic, you know, warm, warm Olympics, summer Olympics are getting hotter every time and it's becoming more difficult for athletes. Um, it's a, it's a sports specific issue as well. And places that, uh, where lakes no longer freeze uh, in the winter will not be breeding the next generation of ice hockey players. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what made you want to do this uh, to, you know, take this stance is not something uh, yet that, you know, is widespread among athletes. There is a core that I think, uh, Lou, you can tell me in a minute, uh, whether I think you have 100, 150 or some number of athletes that have signed on to this. But what made you want to be a, a spokesperson, in effect, or an evangelist uh, on this topic? I think we actually hit 200 signatories today. <laughs> um, you know, I... I think especially uh, female athletes, they've taken, you know, with the WNBA and with women's soccer, we've really taken a lead on social justice issues. And in my opinion, this is a fundamental social justice issue. Um, climate change is going to impact um, underprivileged communities most severely. Um, and it's something I really care about. And um, yeah, so in terms of, uh, you know, taking a leadership role, it seemed very intuitive and obvious once once I started chatting with Lou about what uh, Eagle Athletes was trying to accomplish, it, it felt really aligned with my personal values. 
I imagine, Jackie, that you're part of what you're influencing, uh, whether it's it's overt or not, are some of your fellow athletes. Um, where do you see the the opportunity there? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, I think for my fellow athletes, hockey is a is a sport that, um, in particular, doesn't uh, encourage like hockey culture doesn't really encourage standing out and speaking up for um, you know it's very team first mentality. Um, so I think it just brings an entryway to have a conversation with some of my teammates who aren't so willing to be uh, outspoken on topics. I think particularly there's a lead by example element with my teammates because my teammates see my lifestyle most frequently. And I do, you know, try to follow uh, more sustainable practices as best I can, but also just by being educated about um, the impacts of climate change, I can become a, a go-to person for questions, which um, I've definitely seen a lot of teammates slowly reduce their meat intake. I've seen a lot of um, my fellow uh, teammates, you know, reduce their plastic consumption, um, you know, be willing to bike more often than they drive, small things like that. So small ripples. Have you received any pushback? Uh, we've seen over the past uh, half decade or so that that expressing yourself as an athlete isn't always a <laughs> pardon expression apple pie kind of thing. You know, kneeling it during the, the the national anthem and and fists in the air and other kinds of uh, expressions have have gotten a lot of pushback. Have you seen any as as you talk about uh, climate, Jackie? And, and then Lou, Lou, I'd love to hear your thoughts too. Yeah, there has been a little bit of pushback. I mean. Um you know, definitely there's anytime you try to push forward a conversation about climate, you also, you often get um, the accusation of being a bit hypocritical in terms of how often we were flying when I was playing in Canada. Um, ice hockey is a particularly energy intensive sport uh, in terms of the arenas. Um, but the most pushback that I've received has been related to my diet, uh, which hasn't entirely been a, a climate focused um, decision. It's also been, um, you know, values about caring about animals, but I get a lot of pushback because it is such a macho physical sport that, um, you know, I'm not getting enough protein or I'm not going to be fueled properly, which hasn't been a problem for me. But I, I have found that some of my uh, strongest initial pushback uh, conversations are people who are really curious about maybe adopting a similar lifestyle. So that's been kind of interesting. Yeah. Lou, what have you been learning about the ex self-expression or, you know, expression on perhaps controversial issues uh, in the world these days by athletes? Uh, great question. And it's kind of one of the, 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 that question is one of the foundational reasons why I founded Eco Athletes, because uh, I felt like athletes were leading on all of these other issues, but not on climate. And so we did research to find out why athletes, even those who are environmentally minded, um, wouldn't speak on climate. And what we found was that one of those foundational reasons is that they fear being called out as being a hypocrite, as, as Jackie mentioned, for the high carbon footprint. They're also, uh, they don't want to get political. And what we basically do in conversations individually, we also do workshops, is where we take on these obstacles. Another is it's too sciencey. And we provide them with answers so that those obstacles become much smaller and that they then become more confident to speak out on climate. Um, but we demystify those obstacles.
Well, look forward to seeing what happens with this in Glasgow. Uh, Jackie, thank you for your, for standing up and stepping up on this topic, and Lou for organizing um, athletes to uh, to do exactly that. Lou Blaustein is president of the nonprofit group Eco Athletes, and Jackie Pieri is an American professional hockey player based in Italy. Thanks to you both. I'm Deanna Anderson, Senior Editor at GreenBiz. Last week, I attended TED Countdown, in which a plethora of speakers shared their visions for how we can get to a net zero future. It was situated in Edinburgh, Scotland, about 50 miles away from Glasgow, where COP26 will be happening pretty soon. So I thought it'd be fitting to ask attendees and speakers about their hopes for the United Nations Climate Conference. Here are their answers spliced together but first, some Scottish music. My name is Amy Larkin. I'm the founder director of PR3 and the author of Environmental Debt, The Hidden Costs of a Changing Global Economy. I would like the actual true connections between economic and environmental performance to be integrated into all COP discussion. The current state of economic performance, the high markets around the world are occurring at the same moment that the entire global habitat is under dire threat. There has to be connective tissue in cop between environmental and economic performance and the acceptance that there will be trillions of dollars of stranded assets and hundreds of millions of people out of work and out of homes in the next decade has to be part of a truthful discussion the national commitments that are on the table do not reflect the deep understanding of what we're facing. And I would hope that some global leader stands up and actually tells the truth. This is a collapse waiting to happen, and we have to address it with sober, true connections between our money and our home, our earthly home. That's what I would like to see. So my name is Connor Lasalles. Um, I'm the co-founder of a company called Earthly Biochar, and we're trying to focus on mitigation uh, with biochar, which is a negative emission technology. Um, alongside this, I work with a company called We Don't Have Time, which is a social media platform for activists where we rate corporates on how progressive they are in their climate action and we hold them to account and we give them ideas and we create this open space for climate dialogue. I want to see commitments, but then I want to see how we can hold these commitments to account and trace them and track them at a regular interval so that if we need to change course we can early because we're in a race against time and my biggest fear is that all these companies climate commitments are words and not action 
and what level of traceability do we have as citizens um, to see if these actions are actually going through to real world impacts. Um, so I want this radical transparency from companies and organizations to say, if we're on track, if we're not on track, what we need to do to get on track and to just be open and vulnerable and ask for help where needed. I'm Clara Rowe and I'm the CEO of Restore. I would like to see deepened responsibility from the global north to the global south um, and deeper commitments from those of us who have taken so much from the world. Um, I would like to see I would like to see a diversity of conversations that don't get smoothed over. I don't think it has to be smoothed over. I think there can be messiness in the many, many different approaches that we all have to addressing climate change. Hi, my name is Leah Thomas, and I'm the founder of Intersectional Environmentalists, which is an online resource um, and community that's dedicated to climate justice and amplifying the efforts of historically under-amplified voices. So at COP, I would really hope that climate justice is on the agenda. I don't know if that's going to happen. I honestly feel like it's not going to be a very diverse or intersectional space. Um, but I would really hope that there's a conversation about the intersections between social justice and environmentalism. It's about time. And I also really hope that COP does not enable um, oil companies. So if they're present and they're just trying to platform them, then I'm going to be really sad. So I hope that it's, you know, more conversations about climate justice and less about how we can work with these extractive industries so they stop being horrible. Yep, my name is Matt Printeville and I'm the CEO and Chief Solutioneer at Upstream. I would really like to see folks start talking about the consumption impacts as they relate to climate change because I think that most of the time when people are thinking about climate and how do we solve it, they're thinking about in terms of energy or transportation, but they're not really thinking about the impacts of all of the stuff that we consume. And of course, the predominant consumption model is really the one-way, throw-away, single-use packaging paradigm, which has a lot of embedded carbon in it. And so those are the kinds of systems that we need to start undoing. And so it's not just about um, fossil, getting off of fossil fuels because the petrochemical industry wants to move to making more plastics. <laughs> and so we're not gonna be able to keep the fossils in the ground unless we can start to cure our single-use packaging habit. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll learn more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned. While you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. We publish seven of them every week, and it's a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters, and you'll learn more about them. We love to hear from you, your comments, your questions, your tips. Hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week live from Verge 21 with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. See you at Verge. And as always, thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by the Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving towards a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. 
Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com.